The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series with Oded Gilad and Dina Freeman. Episode 8, Human Rights. Human rights, in theory, are rights that all people have just because they're human. So irrespective of nationality, race, religion, gender, language, geography, color, or any other distinguishing feature, all people, in theory, share these rights. Sounds good, doesn't it? But there are some problems. First, we need to consider what are rights. Rights are essentially principles of entitlement that are created by a society. Rights are generally created by laws or statutes, and to be effective, they have to be enforced by a legal and judicial system. In most cases, rights are therefore created and enforced by states. So, for example, in many states, citizens have the right to vote, and if anyone tries to forcibly stop them from voting, they can appeal to the police or to the court system to restrain the person trying to stop them from voting or to punish them. Or in many states, citizens have the right to private property. So if someone else trespasses on your property or steals your property, you can go to the police or to the courts and seek redress. If there were no police and no courts, then these rights would be rather meaningless because you'd have no way to defend them. And this is exactly the problem with human rights. These are rights that supposedly apply to everyone, everywhere. So they're fundamentally global rights. And as such, they require a global system of enforcement, some kind of global police force or global court. But neither of these exist. And therefore, there's no way to defend or enforce human rights. So they end up being theoretical or aspirational at best, but not real rights. But hang on, you say, there's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and a whole system of international human rights law. Surely that makes human rights real? Well, let's take a look. The whole idea of human rights arose after the Second World War, and in particular in response to the Holocaust, where the Nazi government actively murdered its own citizens if they happened to be Jewish, homosexual, or have some other trait not considered to be perfect Aryan. So after the war, it was considered really important to set up a system through which citizens would be protected against abuses by their own governments. In 1946, the newly established United Nations set up the UN Commission on Human Rights to devise such a system. The Commission established a drafting committee of lawyers and philosophers under the chairmanship of Eleanor Roosevelt. And in 1948, they issued the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The declaration lists 30 human rights. It includes the right not to be tortured, the right not to be enslaved, the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty, the right to education, the right to food and shelter, the right to freedom of expression, and so on and so on and so on. So far, so good. But as you may have noticed, many people today are sadly still tortured, still enslaved, still deemed guilty without proof, and vast numbers of people do not have access to education or to adequate food or shelter or the ability to safely express themselves. So what went wrong? First of all, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a declaration, not a treaty. It's an aspirational document but it has no legal force whatsoever. If the creators had wanted to really bring about these rights in the whole world, 
they would firstly have written a treaty. Treaties, in contrast to declarations, at least in theory, are legally binding. Secondly, they would have created some kind of global enforcement mechanism to back up these rights and make them defendable. This was, in fact, the original idea. Right at the beginning of the discussions, during the second session of the Commission for Human Rights in 1947, Australia introduced a draft resolution to establish an International Court of Human Rights to oversee violations of the proposed Covenant or Treaty of Human Rights. A working group was set up, consisting of Australia, Belgium, Iran and India, to work out the details of this court. How would it function? Where would it be located? How many judges would there be and how would they be chosen? Should it be a completely new court or part of the already existing International Court of Justice? And so on and so on and so on. But as this group were working out all the details and things seemed to be progressing well, another group of countries stepped forward and opposed the whole idea. And this group included big powers such as the US, China and Russia. And so in the end, the idea never got off the ground. And to be honest, that effectively was the end of human rights in any real sense of the term. What happened instead was a long drawn out process of creating so-called international human rights law with lots of different treaties, but basically no meaningful enforcement system. There are now nine core human rights treaties, which are supposedly legally binding. And there are also dozens of declarations which are only aspirational documents, kind of voluntary normative guidelines. But the treaties are the supposedly key part of international law. So how do these treaties work? Well, first the text is negotiated by states, and this generally takes years. Then once the text has actually been agreed, states are invited to sign and then to ratify if they want to. Many states choose not to sign and not to ratify these treaties. And in this case, the treaty simply doesn't apply to them. A state is only legally bound by the treaty if they ratify it. So that's the first problem. And as we might expect, there is a wide range in the number of ratifications for different treaties. As states pick and choose the treaties which they feel might be beneficial to them and avoid the treaties which might limit their powers in particular key areas. And so if we look at the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example, we see it's been ratified by very many countries. But if we look at the International Convention for the Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearance, we see that far fewer states have signed up. And the situation regarding the International Convention on the Protection of the Rights of All Migrant Workers and Members of Their Families is even worse. The second problem is that even if states do sign and ratify a treaty, such that in theory it is legally binding for that state, there's no enforcement mechanism. If a state abuses the rights of some of its citizens, these citizens have no global police to turn to and no global court to turn to. Basically, there's nothing they can do. And thus many states continue to abuse many of these rights, even when they've signed up to the treaties. Instead of setting up a court or some other type of proper enforcement system, the UN Human Rights Council has a number of different mechanisms through which it monitors the implementation of these treaties. There are various different mechanisms, charter mechanisms such as the Universal Periodic Review, and treaty mechanisms such as treaty bodies, 
But in most cases, what these boil down to is a process in which each state presents a report about its human rights performance. And then the Human Rights Council, through one of these mechanisms, offers its recommendations. None of this is legally binding or enforceable in any way. And other than perhaps being a little bit embarrassing for the states presenting their reports, it's really a largely pointless exercise. Some people may argue that it's better than nothing, and that's probably true, but it is far, far short of what a real global human rights system could be. One thing is clear, if we wanted a properly enforceable human rights system, we wouldn't have designed it this way. We would have followed the earlier suggestion of having a proper covenant of human rights and a global human rights court. What we have instead is a system that to the untrained eye makes it look like we take human rights seriously, when actually we don't. In recent years, there have been some attempts to push states to start taking human rights more seriously. There were two initiatives to create global courts to make human rights enforceable. In the 1990s, a large coalition of NGOs came together, spearheaded by the World Federalist Movement, to push for the creation of an international criminal court that would hold national leaders accountable for the worst human rights abuses, such as genocide and war crimes. There were some states that were in favour, and there were other states that were against, and after several years of negotiation, eventually the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court was adopted in 1998. And in 2002, the court was established in The Hague in the Netherlands. This marked a big step forwards, as this court is the first global court that can hold individuals, rather than states, accountable. However, it's far from perfect. One of the most serious problems is that the court can only rule over individuals in states that have signed and ratified the Rome Statute, and many states, including the US, have not. A second attempt to beef up the human rights system took place shortly after that. In 2008, Switzerland put the idea of a global human rights court back on the table. They drew up a detailed proposal of how it could function and tried to initiate discussion and debate. However, whilst academics and NGOs were very much in favour, most states were against the idea. And again, the idea did not get off the ground. And so we see the difficulty of trying to create a global rights system within an international state system the two just don't sit together. States that would have their powers limited by enforceable global human rights law are supposed to be the ones that choose to create such a law and appropriate enforcement bodies. And of course they don't. If we're serious about human rights, then we need a truly democratic global system where we, the citizens of the world, can vote to create binding global human rights law with a global court to enforce it. At the moment, in the current international order or global confederation that we have, it's just not possible, as we individuals do not have a say or a vote with regard to what happens at the UN or at the global level more generally. If we had real global democracy and a democratic global federation that united all of the world's citizens, then we could create a system that would really protect our human rights. The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series is also available as videos on YouTube and other platforms. If you found the ideas in this episode interesting, please share it.